Everyone learns to talk by imitation. Most people learn to pray the same way. They hear the prayers of others and copy them. Jesus' disciples learn to pray from Jesus. His model prayer, usually referred to as the Lord's Prayer, is a prayer that we can pray for ourselves, but it is also a kind of template. The Lord's Prayer provides us with a foundational vocabulary for praying. The Church received these words from Christ and for more than two millennia has prayed them back to God. These words of the Lord's Prayer are proof of God's care for us and of the new relationship that has come to us through Jesus Christ. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to begin by saying, Our Father in Heaven. The first move, then, in all prayer is a move in God's direction. Prayer begins by recognizing who God really is and what kind of relationship we have with Him. Jesus' prayer teaches us that we are not only approaching God as the Creator and Sovereign of the universe, but as our great caregiver. The designation of God as our Father in Heaven unites these two ideas. Jesus grants us permission to address this powerful Creator on the most intimate terms. Not only is He Father in the sense that He is the Creator, but Jesus' prayer teaches us to approach God as our Father. Prayer, as Jesus models it, is personal. We do not approach God as if He were a king who operates at a great distance from us. We're not mere commoners vying with others of greater importance for a small slice of His attention. This is a family matter. Jesus has already told us why this should encourage us. Because He is your Father, God's eyes are upon you. Your Father sees, hears, and cares for you. Unlike someone who petitions royalty and must convince them that they share the same interests, God is already interested in you. first request of the Lord's Prayer, that God's name may be regarded as holy, invites a question, regarded as holy by whom? Although it's true that we sometimes take God for granted, this request, like the two that follow, seem to be directed at the world at large. Jesus' prayer assumes that we already recognize the dignity of God's name. In other words, the position we should take as we approach God is of someone who knows God and treats Him with the reverence that is His due. Coming to God with the familiarity of a child, but also with reverence, may sound like a contradiction. Some of us are so familiar in our approach to God that we slouch into His presence, mumble a few words without thinking, and then go our way. We have a greater sense of gravity when we meet with our supervisor at work or go out on a first date with someone. But somehow, the fact that we are approaching the Creator of the universe does not move us. Is it possible that instead of being comfortable, we have grown callous? We can be confident 
and reverent at the same time. Before turning to personal concerns, Jesus' prayer expands our frame of reference so that we may consider those concerns within the larger context of God's plan for the world. He teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. There is more to this petition than asking God to look after his own interests although that is partly what is meant. This petition is a way of aligning our plans with God's plan. This request also draws a distinction between heaven and earth. God rules over both, but Jesus' words imply that earth is not yet a place where God's will is always done, or at least it is not a place where the inhabitants are always inclined toward the will of God. On the one hand, this request reflects a desire to draw the rule of heaven down to earth. The hope of the kingdom is that its arrival will bring heaven and earth into alignment so that God's will is done on earth just as it is in heaven. But it is also a request that aims to draw earth up into heaven. Before we begin to address our earthly concerns, Christ invites us to view our needs from above. God doesn't treat our earthly concerns with contempt, but he does expect us to approach these lower concerns with a perspective shaped by the view from above. God is in control, subduing all things for the sake of Christ. With this in mind, we're ready to turn to the particular needs that affect us. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, who promised that the child who asks for bread would not receive a stone, teaches us to begin with bread. As the language shifts from your to our, Jesus teaches us to say, give us today our daily bread. Food is one of the most basic concerns that we have. This request for daily bread includes all the other small concerns that occupy our daily lives. All the things we need to live and the means to provide them are of interest to God because He knows that we need them. We could add many other items to the list as well. We pray for our children, our friends, and our schedules. We ask God to help us accomplish the tasks we have for the day. Sometimes we even pray for the weather. They are not necessities in the technical sense, but they are a concern to us. Because they are our concerns, God is not ashamed to concern himself with them. As important as our everyday needs may be, there are other, more important concerns. Consequently, the trajectory of personal requests in this prayer moves from material to spiritual. In particular, Jesus singles out the two that are the most critical. One is our need for forgiveness. The other is for spiritual protection. 
In Matthew 6:12, we're taught to pray, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The comparison mentioned in this verse is unsettling. Is it a condition? Is Jesus suggesting that we should ask God to make his forgiveness conditional on our forgiving others? The warning of verses 14 and 15 seems to suggest as much. But to say it this way makes the request sound like bargaining. What is more, we can think of many occasions where we have not forgiven others, from grudges for little slights to outright blame for major transgressions. There's plenty of evidence that shows that forgiveness does not come easily to us. We have no grounds for basing our request that God forgive us on our own track record of forgiveness. The petition for spiritual protection in Matthew 6.13 addresses our practice of sin at its point of entrance. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The nature of the request is simple enough. It asks God to keep us out of temptation's way. This strategy is preemptive. Do not even let us come to the place where we feel the enticement to transgress in the first place. The phrase, lead us not, seems surprising. What does God have to do with temptation? Scripture emphatically denies that God has a role in tempting anyone to evil. It is Satan who is called the tempter. Furthermore, James 1:13 and 14 reveals that we are also complicit. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, James observes. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. When we ask God not to lead us into temptation, we are really asking him to protect us from those external and internal influences that work together to produce temptation. With this in mind, the evil spoken of in this petition can easily have a double force. On the one hand, it is a plea that God will protect us from Satan. He is the evil one, with whom sin ultimately originated. At the same time, it is a request that God would preserve us from all the powers of evil in the larger sense of the word. With his phrase, we confess that our safety is found in God alone. doxology included at the end of Matthew 6.13 in some versions does not seem to have been part of Matthew's original text. It's missing from the oldest manuscripts we currently have available. But there is a parallel in 1 Chronicles 29.11, where David declares, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Whether or not the doxology was part of the original, it is a fitting way to close. In this way, 
the Lord's Prayer ends with God, just as it begins with Him. This is what is at the heart of every prayer. When we pray, we focus our attention on God. We remind ourselves of who He is and what He is like. As we approach Him, we place ourselves, our concerns, and even our offenses before Him. The confidence we have in doing so comes from the fact that it is Jesus Christ who has taught us to pray this way. He is our mentor in prayer, but more than this, He is our passport into God's presence. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name, he told his disciples in John 16:24. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete.